Yeah, I'm thankful for air conditioning too. I was just, uh, Nick and I were saying, I was like, I, you know, it wasn't all that long ago, we were setting up and tearing down chairs in PR Smith Elementary School and I had to bring a change of clothes because we would sweat so much setting up chairs, you've got to put on something fresh. <laughs> and so uh, I thank God for air conditioning. This is a beautiful thing. This morning we're going to continue our series. We're going to study the Word of God this morning. And uh, the Bible is different than any other book. You know why? Ay, 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 ay. Okay, well, so I've been saying the same thing every week for the last six weeks. I kind of thought maybe it would have stuck. It's okay. I don't feel rejected. Why does the Bible is different than any other book? Why? Because it's the only book you study to become like the one who wrote it. That's why. And we've been studying, we've been talking about rejection. Last week I invited you to join me in this, and I admitted to you that this is a personal thing for me. This is personal. I'm seeing rejection at play in my own life. I've seen it now. Now it's been at work my whole life, and I'm tired of it, ready to kick it in the teeth and move on. And I'm hoping that maybe you've also experienced that you're learning with me. Last week we learned that rejection's unavoidable. Not even Jesus could avoid it. So the question is not how I avoid rejection. In fact, um, we get ourselves into a lot of problems and troubles when we try to avoid rejection. A lot of, our, a lot of times avoiding rejection ends up becoming more rejection. <laughs> it just causes more problems in the rejection itself. So the question isn't how can I avoid it. The question is how can I keep rejection from redefining who I am? How can I keep rejection from controlling my life? That's the question. How do I rise above it? I'm convinced it's possible to live in such a way with such a confidence of heart that rejection is hardly even noticeable by us. First Peter chapter 2, 4 and 5 says this, that as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus was rejected, but chosen. Rejected by men, but chosen by God. The same can be said of you and me. And we're going to say that over and over again this morning. So we've got to practice a little bit, because there's, there's an inflection that we need to get in this. You're rejected, but chosen. So let's practice this, okay? I say rejected, you say but chosen. You're rejected. That's a little better. Okay, now you say rejected, and I say but chosen. But chosen. You get it? You're rejected, but you're chosen. Being chosen trumps being rejected. Um, the spirit of rejection will cause you to be so busy trying to win the conditional approval of people that you miss the unconditional love of God. The spirit of rejection just gets you so wrapped up, so busy trying to people please, trying to make sure everybody accepts, you're trying to win the conditional love of people 
that you completely miss the unconditional love of God. You're rejected, but chosen. I'm convinced that our greatest need is not to be loved, like a lot of people think. Our greatest need is to be liked. We all want to know that there's somebody out there who actually digs me. There's somebody out there who actually likes me for who I, they accept me. Like their face lights up when I walk into the room. They, they actually think my jokes are funny. And they're not just faking it. Like they really like it. You know what I mean? They, they actually like me for who I am, not trying to change me for that. But they just accept me for who I am. It's a big problem in our homes. So many married couples just endure one another. They don't enjoy each other. So many parents just endure their kids. They don't enjoy their kids. You say, oh, no, I love my kids. Right, I'm not questioning your love for your children. I'm questioning whether or not you actually like them. Do you actually enjoy them? Do you think your kids are cool? And do they know that, right? I mean, friends, what you say and what you do communicates volumes. And oftentimes the message of rejection says, you are not acceptable unless you change this, this, and this. Then maybe I'll think about accepting you. It's horrible. The result of that oftentimes is anger. Um, Dr. Guy Winch, who's a psychologist, I never heard of him before. I found him on the internet. He has a blog called The Squeaky Wheel, and he listed 10 things you don't know about rejection. I thought it was really interesting. One of them was this, that rejection piggybacks on pain pathways in the brain. So the same part of your brain that registers physical pain registers the pain of rejection. And they actually did a scientific controlled study recently and discovered that Tylenol reduces the effects of rejection. Fascinating. Because it operates in the same pathways that your brain reads physical pain. Also, second is this, the memories of rejection stick with us more vividly than the memories of physical pain. I have a, I have a scar on my finger. I don't even know how I got it. Obviously, I got cut at some point but I don't remember it. My mom tells me I was two years old playing with an egg beater on the kitchen floor. Uh, I don't remember that event, but I still have the scar. But you asked me to remember a time or two when I experienced rejection, and I can relive it like it happened yesterday. The memories of rejection stick with us more vividly than the memories of physical pain. Third, rejection creates surges of anger and aggression in a person, first toward others and then toward themselves. Rejection literally sends someone on a mission to destroy. And then last, rejection temporarily lowers your IQ. Tell yourself you're stupid long enough and you'll begin to live it. The truth is we all sustain emotional wounds, you know? Just like I get a cut on the arm or a scrape on the knee we get wounds in the soul. We know how to heal a physical wound. I know how to put a Band-Aid on it. I know how to clean it. We don't have a clue as to how to heal a wounded soul. And so rejection just kind of seems to stay there. In 2001, the Surgeon General of the United States 
actually reported that rejection is a greater risk for adolescent violence than drugs, uh, uh, drugs, poverty, or gang membership. That the root of a lot of violence is rejection. Literally, the cause, the root of every school shooting is rejection. You notice it's never the star football player, the queen of the homecoming court that does that. It's always the quiet one, the person who's lived bullied, experienced rejection, and they pop. We have a term for it in the workplace. It's called going postal. Well, where'd that come from? Violence in the workplace that stems from rejection. It's safe to say, uh, it's safe to say that most, if not all, Acts of regression, uh, aggression, anger are rooted in rejection from jilted lovers to fired employees to rejected left, you know, kids left out. There's one man in the Bible I want to take a look at this morning who stands out above all the rest, in my opinion, as somebody who just got a completely raw deal. And he lived rejected but chosen but he couldn't ever see the chosen. He only lived in the rejection. And as a result, it was devastating for him. His name is Ishmael. And I actually want to have you turn in your Bibles. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 16. And we're going to just look at Ishmael's life, okay? And he's Genesis 16 to Genesis 25. And so we'll start in 16 and sort of pull out snippets. I, I want to give you Ishmael's story, okay, as it relates to rejection. So just open up your Bibles to Genesis 16. Ishmael is the son of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were an old couple, well into their 80s, unable to have children. And God promised them that they would have children. And many of you know the story that they grew impatient, it would seem, and Sarah suggested to Abram that she take Hagar, her maidservant, and marry Abram, and Abram make Hagar his concubine, and they have children through Hagar. And so Hagar became their surrogate mother so that Abraham and Sarah could have children. And that brings us to Genesis chapter 16. I'll just start with verse 4. So he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring and said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Those must have been hard words to hear. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son you shall name him Ishmael. There's our guy. For the Lord has heard of your misery. 
He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. You see what's happening? So Hagar becomes pregnant and the Bible tells us that she began to despise her mistress. The word despise there it means to belittle. In other words, Hagar's carrying Abraham's baby, which means her position in the home has risen a few notches. And she's taking that newfound authority maybe a little too far. And she begins to despise, belittle Sarah in the home because Sarah's not carrying Abraham's baby. Hagar is. And so Sarah feels that and she gets, she reacts. And Abraham says, do with her what you please. So what does she do? The Bible says she mistreats Hagar. The word mistreated there literally can be translated browbeat. It implies she might have resorted to physical abuse in Hagar. Whatever the case, it's, the bottom line is there's a lot of tension in that tent. I'm, I'm guessing Abraham slept with the camels because despite the smell, it was still peaceful, right? I mean, it was not a pretty scene inside his tent. And so Hagar flees. And God meets up with her, and then God tells her, and this is where we meet Ishmael. You're carrying this boy, and you're going to name him Ishmael. So we meet Ishmael while he's still in utero, not even born yet. And God says to her, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's going to be living in hostility toward everybody around him. Can I just say that's not what every expectant mother wants to hear about their child? I mean, you, you want to hear, your baby is going to be so smart. Your baby is going to be so beautiful. You don't want to hear, your baby is going to grow up to be a real jackrabbit. Your baby is going to be a wild donkey of a man, hostile toward everybody. Well, Hagar goes back home. She has Ishmael. Look at verse 16. Abram was 86 years old. That's important. 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. A few years pass, and we go to Genesis chapter 17, and we come to verse 16, and God makes it clear to Abram that no, Sarah is actually going to bear you a child. And he says, I'm going to bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, will the son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? That's a little math clue. If Abraham is pushing a hundred and he was 86 when Ishmael was born, how old is Ishmael now? About 14. Okay, just, just keep that in mind. I find timelines help as I'm telling the story. So Abraham says to God, if only Ishmael would live under your blessing. You hear his heart. I mean, he's, the, he's dad, you know. God, I want you to bless my boy, Ishmael. And God gives him the good news. God says in verse 19, yes, I will, yeah, I will bless Ishmael. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. But as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. 
I will make him fruitful, and I'll greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. Oh, that's great news for a dad to hear. Your boy is going to grow up, and he's going to be the father of, like, 12 nations. I mean, he's, he's going to have 12 rulers. I mean, that's, whew, that's pretty significant. That's kind of good news. So God promises Abraham, Abraham, my blessings on Ishmael, as Sarah gives birth to this other baby. So go to Genesis chapter 21, and we come to the good news. Genesis 21, verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abram gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Wow. That must have been great news, huh? But remember, there's been a conflict brewing for the last 14 years in Abraham's tent, right? There's not good blood happening between Hagar and Sarah. In fact, I find it really strange that there's no record of Sarah ever speaking to Ishmael. There's no record of her ever talking to him, ever receiving him. I find that odd. Because remember, Sarah might not have, or Ishmael might not have been hers biologically, but he was legally. It was as if she adopted him. I mean, this is, this is her son for all intents and purposes, just not biologically. And yet, she never seemed to receive him. And so she gives birth to her own son, and this is great news. But I wonder how this plays out in the home. Well, we go to verse 8. The child grew, Isaac grew, and he was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. The weaning ceremony for a child was sometime around age 3 or 4. They would nurse until then. And in a day when infant mortality was huge, um, the weaning of a baby would be a significant event to celebrate. So it was an opportunity to, you know, I mean, finally Isaac is weaned. We're going to give the kid the good food now. You know, he's going to get steak and pizza. And we're going to celebrate that, and he survived it. But do the math. If he's three or four years old, Ishmael would be about how old now? 17 or 18. So then verse 9, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. That word mocking can go both ways. The Hebrew there, I mean, it could be a negative kind of mocking, like he's, you know. It's also, I've seen it translated just simply playing with. I mean, he could have been, you know, a good big brother. We don't know. But whatever the case, we know that Sarah saw something she didn't like. Verse 10, she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my boy Isaac. Don't mess with mama. Verse 11, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. Abraham was put in an awful position between his wife and his son. I mean, that's a, that's a rock and a hard place. Do you see that? God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy 
and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make, listen to this now, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also. Remember, God's promising that. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, food, literally bread, bread and water, and gave them to Hagar and set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. I find that really odd. Abraham was a wealthy guy, a wealthy guy. And all you could give to your son is bread and water as you send him out in the desert. That's really harsh. I mean, you couldn't give him an extra, you know. I'm sure Abram could have spared a goat or a sheep. The guy had thousands of them. You understand? Thousands. Abraham was not a poor man. He was a very wealthy man. And all he can spare his kid is bread and water. That's pretty lame, if you ask my humble opinion. He set them on her shoulders. They go out. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. This is a, such a sad scene. They run out of bread and water, and they're stuck in a desert. You can imagine the heat of the day, and they're desperate and they're thirsty, and they're scared. And God heard the boy crying. Do you see that? God heard who crying? The boy. It doesn't say that he heard his mother. She was crying too, but he heard the boy. God's got his eye out on Ishmael, doesn't he? God's going to bless this kid. That's the point I want you to see. God's got his eye on Ishmael. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. There's that promise again. That's like the third or fourth time we've read that now. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And look at this. God was with the boy as he grew up. God was with him. Whew. Few more pieces of the story. Go over to Genesis 25. So now years pass. This is years. So the story moves up. Genesis chapter 25, verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons. I wonder if that was an awkward funeral. Ishmael came back after all those years for his dad's funeral. I, I can get that. But he was the guy that was kicked out in the desert with bread and water years ago, remember? I'm not going to read anything else into it. I'm just thinking that was probably awkward. That's all I'm going to say. And then we see Ishmael is in the, the biblical account, verse 12, tells us about the family line of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And we come to chapter 25, verse 18, and it tells us this final epitaph on, on Ishmael's life and Ishmael's descendants. That after Ishmael died, that he and his descendants lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. You see this? Before Ishmael's born, 
God looks ahead into Ishmael's life, and he says, this kid's going to be a wild donkey of a man, living hostile to everybody around him. And then at the end of Ishmael's life, the epitaph on it is he and his descendants, his family, they lived in hostility toward everybody else around him. The Bible doesn't tell us this directly, but friends, I just wonder if the reason why Ishmael was so hostile was because of the rejection that he faced as a young man. I can't imagine the kind of scar that must have left on his skull, his soul. Can you? Your biological father, your adopted mother, dump you in the desert with bread and water. That's got to hurt. I don't know how you recover from that. Our souls are like this spring, you know. We kind of start off, every, everybody's born with a good bounce in their step. It's part of what I love about little kids, man. They're just bouncing everywhere. They're like Tigger, boing, boing. And, they, and it's amazing. Are, are you amazed at times at the resilience of children, right? I mean, they can take hits, it seems, and we think, and then the next day they're back playing again, having a good time. They just, it's the spring, still has a lot of bounce in it. And you take the hits, rejection pushes on the spring, and over time the spring does lose its spring, doesn't it? And that's when you get old and crusty and you don't have as much bounce anymore in the spring. And then there's times where rejection happens and it's severe enough that it really compresses on the spring, doesn't it? It pushes it down until it just pops. And that's when you see the angry outburst. That's when you see the hole in the wall. That's when the divorce ends abruptly, or the marriage divorces suddenly. That's when the person just ups and quits and walks out on their boss. That's when, you name it, that's when, in worst-case scenarios, when it hits the news. You see the headlines, and this and that happened. It's, there's a popping that happens. We can only take so much rejection, so much compression on the soul before it some people in that moment turn on themselves many teenagers turn to self-harm you know they are rejected so they cut everybody else is rejecting them they might as well reject themselves that's when people just sort of hit a point and they I'll tell you uh, another little observation. I might be really reading into it, but you noticed that Ishmael was referred to as the boy when we read that a moment ago. And does that strike you as odd? He's 18 years old. He's not a boy, right? But yet the Hebrew is pretty clear. It's a reference. He's a boy. So it seems like it's inconsistent. You know what I think is going on? Just my own. You can totally disagree with me. But my observation is this. When a young person experiences some kind of traumatic rejection, they tend to get stuck there emotionally and never move on. It's, 
it's what you're seeing when you see a 40-year-old man still drinking beer and playing softball with his buddies every Friday night and kind of rejecting his family, you know, or he loses himself in video games for hours on end. It's like, dude, you be a man. You got responsibilities, right? It's when you see a woman who sort of gets giddy or behaves at times like almost like a little girl. Go, go back to those. You can go back and you can trace that back to a traumatic kind of rejection. They get stuck emotionally there. And I happen to think Ishmael got seriously stuck. I, you can't experience what he did and not. I mean, that's major, you know? And Ishmael had the choice, remember? Rejected. Thank you. Come on. He was rejected. Right. So Ishmael had the option. Do I live and nurse in this rejection, or do I embrace the fact that the God of the universe has chosen me with a very special destiny, purpose, calling, future? You can see it at play in Ishmael's life, his whole life. We've highlighted it. God, I'm going to build a great nation out of that guy. I'm going to bless that guy. God's heard the boy. God's been watching that guy his whole way through. I don't know that Ishmael was ever able to see it because he stuck in the rejection of his youth. You and I are faced with the same choice. Which identity am I going to embrace? Do I embrace rejection or do I embrace being chosen? The choice is yours, my friend. I mean, rejection feels good sometimes, you know? The spirit of rejection is kind of nice for your flesh. You know, it's, it's nice to... It, rejection excuses me from action because I'm rejected. So it kind of feels good to sort of nurse that, you know? But it's deadly to you and to me. So how do I live as a chosen one? I'm going to give you some homework today, stuff you have to do this week. There's three things that you can do to embrace being chosen and run from rejection. One is this. You can wait for God to vindicate you. Vindication is a really powerful concept in the Bible. Psalms chapter 135, verse 14 says, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. To vindicate means to, to back up validate. It, it can even mean to avenge. In other words, God knows the real. He knows the truth of the situation in your life. He knows it. Do you agree with that? God, God knows it. We always say there's two sides to every story, right? But God knows the real side, does he not? And so God is able to vindicate you. The question is, can you wait for it? The ability to wait is a mark of maturity. Tell a two-year-old they can't have their cookie until after dinner and they're going to have a fit on you, right? Because they're two. They're immature. They, they don't know how to wait yet. But you and I, the older, the more mature you get. I don't want to say older because I know old people who aren't mature. But the more mature we get, the greater our ability to wait the greater our ability to recognize that, man, some of these best things are things that I'm not going to get right now. So I can sit tight and know that God will judge justly. You know, it hit me this morning. Jesus is waiting for his vindication. The day will come. 
when Jesus will be vindicated. He was maligned, misunderstood, accused. People don't believe him. People think he's a fraud, think he's a fake, right? And the Bible tells us that there will come a day, I love this verse, when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The day is going to come when Jesus actually gets his vindication. When God goes, oh, by the way, everybody, he's the real deal. And that's when people fall on their faces in worship of Jesus. So if Jesus is waiting for his vindication, friends, you and I, we've got some waiting to do. Have you ever noticed that the more you try to prove yourself, the worse you make it? Have you ever noticed that? The harder you try to defend yourself, sometimes the worse you make it. Hmm. It's not my job to get other people to like me. That's God's job. Jesus said something interesting in John. He said, John 541, Jesus said, I do not accept glory from human beings. That's a straight up statement. John 541, Jesus, I do not accept glory from human beings. Just like, you know, so there's a few things I don't do. I won't eat sushi from a gas station, right? And I will not accept glory from human beings. Why? Because I consider the source. Hmm. I would rather have my praise come from God, who is my vindicator. So what does Jesus do? Well, 1 Peter 2.23 says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He knows that God knows, and he's enough, it's enough to wait for God to sort it all out. When you give other people, this is a quote from John Piper, and I thought it was really good. When you give other people the power to define your value, you're giving them a power that belongs to God alone. It's just not their place. It's not my place to define your value, and it's not your place to define mine. That is only God's role. That was a great quote. I'll say it again because I know some of you are writing and getting hand cramps. It's not Doug Rouse. It can't take credit. It's John Piper, who is a great author. But he says, when you give other people the power to define your value, you're giving them a power that belongs to God alone. So the first thing I do is I wait for vindication. That day's coming. The second thing I do is I forgive my rejectors. Jesus hung on the cross, and he said, Father, if you forgive them, because they, they don't really know what they're doing. Isn't that awesome? He forgave his rejectors. You can do the same. You can do the same. I find that this forgiveness thing is huge. And it's something that I've got to do over and over and over again. It's not a one-time deal. You don't just come to the altar today and go, okay, God, I forgive those people that rejected me. And then you walk away and it's over. I'm pretty certain that, that the sting of that rejection will dog you for a while. And each time that it does, you have the choice. Do I nurse it or do I, okay, God, you know, I forgive them for that because, you know, they're people just like I am. Their perspective is limited, just like mine is. They're only doing the thing that they think is the best. You know, I mean, God, I, 
you see, I'm just giving you the conversation that goes on in my brain, right? So God, I'm just, I forgive, I forgive them, I give them to you. That's all, it's theirs, it's your authority. So I forgive my rejectors. And I would also encourage you this, to do this. Don't necessarily feel like you have to go to that person and tell them. Sometimes that causes more damage. I mean, unless the opportunity affords itself, and you'll know it, but there might, the opportunity might come up and you might have the opportunity to really have a good conversation and talk through the stuff. But you know what, in the meantime, just you and the Lord. God, because it's really, rejection, friends, is really more about how you respond to it than what they did. So that's why it's really between you and God, right? So God, I'm just giving that person to you. You know, I forgive them, they're yours bless them and then lastly receive your destiny remember you're rejected but chosen so to be rejected is a reminder of your past to be chosen is a reminder of your future of your destiny so I want to embrace that I don't want to embrace the past I don't want to embrace the rejection I want to embrace the truth that I've been chosen that there's a God out there who actually digs me God, the God of the universe, thinks I'm cool. Not bad. He, right? You go, that's kind of weird. Yeah, it is. it's so strange to our ears. We're not used to hearing it. The God of the universe actually likes what he's doing in you. The spirit of rejection will keep you so busy trying to win the fickle, conditional love of other people that you miss the unconditional love of God. Embrace your destiny. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, I thank you First of all, I thank you that I haven't experienced the kind of rejection that Ishmael did. Whew. That must have hurt. I'm thankful, Lord, that I've been spared that kind of pain. <laughs> but I'm also thankful, God, that in the same way you chose him for greatness, you've chosen me. That you have a plan that's good. You have a purpose that's good. You have a dream that's good. Thank you, God, for that. So, Lord, um, today I choose to be chosen. I choose to not nurse rejection, but I choose instead to hang on to the truth of the destiny to which you have called me. And I thank you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name.